Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Previously on Dave's front office. Well, David, um, you know, there's some players that are true leaders, okay? They really are. Uh, and if they're leaders, they're probably very prominent, okay? Uh, I truly believe that LeBron James could be anything he wanted to be in this world. I do. Uh, he's a leader. Uh, he's a leader that has a voice. He's smart. That was the legendary Jerry West on last week's debut of Dave's front office, talking about his admiration for LeBron James. This week, we have more with Jerry in part two of our discussion. Among other topics, he'll share his thoughts on how players like LeBron and others have turned the tables on the management player dynamic. Dave's front office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wolf, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role, except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wolf. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Jerry West. In Jerry's last few seasons with the Lakers, they became a super team before we even started using the term. In the summer of 1968, Will Chamberlain joined the Lakers in a trade with the 76ers, teaming with future Hall of Famers West and Elgin Baylor to create a team that seemed destined to win a championship. But in the last 20 years, star players no longer were bound to their teams indefinitely and soon started using their free agency power to create new super teams. You know, one of the things you talked about a little bit was um, like LeBron growing into a, his role currently. And one of the things we're seeing now in the league over the last couple of years is a lot of the players have realized that they have the power through the, either their free agency or to request the trade that they don't need a team to trade them onto a power team, so to speak. They're taking the power among themselves. Hey, let's go play together. You know, KD and Kyrie, uh, you know, LeBron's done it. Um, you know, certainly you're seeing, um, you know, Kawhi and PG come together. Um, is this good or bad for the league? I, I kind of like it in a way because I, I think you're going to end up with some interesting teams. And it was what teams tried to do on their own. They tried to trade for those combinations you know, before, but I think the players have taken over ownership of that now more, of the elite guys. Well, and you know, one time, Dave, you had no choice, okay? There, there was a time that I would have liked to found out what my true worth was as a player, okay? That wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, you were subservient to, uh, uh, to the owners. You were uh, indentured to the owners. You had no choice. And there were a couple of times in my life, very disappointed, never had an agent in my life, that I was very disappointed in a contract negotiation when I was a player. Um, you know, I can't even imagine today, uh, thinking back about those times when you go in there and uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, certain players make a certain amount of money and you feel like you're better and they make more money. 
uh, and you play the game for perfection and to win. You play for the fan. And if you do something at a high level, and if you would be in demand, uh, which I think I would have been as a free agent. Yep, you definitely would have been. Well, I would have loved to have known what my true worth, worth was. Uh, and that's what I enjoy about uh, the players being able to move. But I also think there's certain cities of defin- uh, 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 where people want to go, okay? Right. There's a lifestyle, uh, no income tax in states. Um, better climates. Um, I saw something really positive the other day that if I could write a letter to him and just say, I'm happy you stayed in Milwaukee, Giannis, by staying in Milwaukee, that showed me something very powerful. Right. But I do think there are certain franchises, the ones that have historic natures. Uh, and obviously there's one in Los Angeles who's completely benefited from, being, uh, from having these incredible free agents come here. And that's that's the Lakers, and it's more power to them. It's more power to the uh, to the uh, uh, excellence of this franchise in winning, and also it's probably players that um, have some interest in, in after basketball, and they might have the personality and the wherewithal to get involved in other businesses out here right. with some very very powerful people. But I do I do think that when a free agent leaves a team. And I don't care where he signs, okay? If it's a it's a big guy, that the teams I think in baseball, I believe in baseball, you're compensated for losing a player of X ability. So if there were some draft picks involved, you're never going to replace that player. Whoever makes a trade and loses one of these top players is going to be the loser. If a free, they're going to. I don't care who they get, they're going to be a loser. Uh, they don't come along. They're rare. And looking at the Lakers today, to me, they've got probably the two best players in the league on one team. And their future is set. And they're going to be good for a while. And only, only uh, God forbid, accidents happen to these great players because it's not only horrible for the team, but for the league. Uh, people love to watch these people play. Right. And I, listen, every time I get a chance to watch what, who I think is a great player play, I'm going to be watching it. What did you think of the play-in tournament this year? David, I really didn't understand, to be honest with you. Uh, I still don't understand it. But, uh, you know, I think the NBA tried to, to, uh, to do what they felt was in best interest of the league and, more importantly, the competitive side of it. Uh, you know, look at Phoenix went down there. They didn't lose a game down there. Right. And they got close, and they right. didn't quite make it. Uh, but it's a tribute to them that they kept playing and had a chance to play. But right. uh, some of these teams are just not good enough. Uh, they're, uh, they're young. Uh, some of them are not very talented. And for them, you know, it was hopeless for them. Uh, but they at least got a chance to go there and compete. And more importantly, for the league, for their front office to get a look at some of these players that they wanted to look at who they're going to have to decide on their future going forward, or are they going to say, well, this guy's not going to play for us? Now, there's been some talk also of a, like a mid-season tournament where they're going to crown a champion. Now, I, I kind of find that maybe I'm really old school on this. I like to think of myself as kind of modern and up-to-date on most things. But I don't see how any team's going to celebrate, any of the quality teams are going to celebrate a mid-season victory. You know, I mean, everybody knows that the, the true title of 82 games, it's an attrition. You got to get through it. You got to deal with a lot of things. 
I, I just don't I just don't see it as a big plus. I was curious what your thoughts were. Well, it's almost like an all-star. Is that going to replace the all-star game? Yeah, it's <laughs> no, like three, I, three or four I, weeks. You know, <laughs> I don't very rarely disagree with uh, with the league office, but uh, uh, if I if I could have a chance to say no, I would vote against no. And obviously, I don't have that voice. Uh, I'm just a consultant with the Clippers. That's all I have. Right. right. Um, I want to pivot now, and I want to I want to talk about the evolution of the game. And, you know, because you've been in the league so long um, and I found it interesting, you know, there's one other guy that's just about been in the league as long as you have. And he's another West Virginian, Rod Thorne. <laughs> you've been in the league 60. Rod's been in 57. You guys have been in this league 117 years. Oh so God. from a perspective standpoint, I figure, you know, you're one of the guys to, to ask. And you come out of West Virginia and I want to just kind of go way back and then we're going to kind of move forward. But... You know, one stat of yours, I think, that, that people would be surprised to know is that you averaged double-figure rebounds your entire college career. And in fact, your senior year, you averaged like 16 rebounds a game. And I think your first couple of years in the pros, you averaged eight rebounds a game. I, I was kind of blown away about that because I didn't know that either. Well, David, you know, when I, when I was younger, uh, you know, I haven't – there's certain instincts we all have, uh, reactionary instincts are, I think, what set some people apart. And at one time, uh, most of the really good rebounders, they're not the huge jumpers. They're the guys that pursue the ball. But I, I was, you know, I was an athlete before my time, and I, I don't even like to talk about it, but I was. I could jump higher, could run faster than anyone. Um, uh, instinctively, uh, I was gifted. And yet I was just very crude as far as my offense ability and something that came later in life. But I always had coaches that stress defense and uh, I'd always been a, a, a really good rebounder. And probably shockingly, I was a great shot blocker in college because of my ability to jump and highly and quickly. But it was something even in the NBA when I was not looked at as a offensive threat, my, my first year very much because I didn't play a whole lot in my first year. And I think I, looking back at that time, it was probably a very formative time and I had to figure out a way to get in the game. The way I could get in the game would be a defensive player, a rebounder and pick up loose balls and steals. And if I scored, which I did, I think I averaged over 17 a game. And then the off season for me, that was, uh, that was a huge, my first year and toward the end of it, we made the playoff. And I played really well in the playoff, I thought, for me. But getting to the next year, I, I really felt that I was going to take a big step, and I did. I think I averaged over 30 points a game. I made the all-pro team. Um, and I really felt that I had a lot more in me to be a total basketball player. Um, but it was just something that uh, I enjoyed. David, I loved the competition. I, I just – I'm still competitive today. There's things that there's things that uh, you know you wish you could do a little bit better in terms of of uh, being involved a little bit more. But uh, those days are over for me, and I'm just an advisor. I mentioned earlier, but uh, I enjoyed those days. And and uh, <clears throat> you know we pressed and trapped and ran. We were one of those teams that were probably the first team that truly um, played a very quick pace game. Uh, little did I know that we're going to see more and more of it going forward, and particularly the advent of the free throw line, I'm a three-point line. Um, you know, when 
in your career, you actually averaged, I, I had to look this up, you averaged 39 minutes a game in your career, 41 in the playoffs. But when you came in, there was no real understanding, Jared, of how to take care of your body, you know, <laughs> physically for the rigors of season after season. And, you know, it's definitely changed. And, and when I look back on it, I, here's how I always looked at it. I said, nutrition was basically steak and potatoes. Fuel was kind of coffee and cigarettes for some guys. Hydration was the six packs of beer they gave you in the locker room. Conditioning was chasing fast women in the bars after the game. Load, load management was how much do I need to pack for a week on the road. And rest and recovery was the summer. And that was the, about the extent of what they knew about training and nutrition and even taping your ankle. And you see what's available to players now. And you talked about it a little earlier. The medical stuff has improved dramatically. The, there's customized food plans and training plans. They get customized shakes and vitamins and blood analysis and things like this. If you were playing today, how much would those advantages, including the charter travel and the better hotels and all the other stuff, how would that have made you a better player? I mean, would that have protected you more against some of the injuries? I mean, can you see how that would have given you some greater advantages than you had? Well, David, you know, one of the things that I'm really, uh, when I look back and I look at, you know, you look on YouTube and all these training drills for players, uh, you know, as, as a player, um, I don't, you know, I didn't weigh enough. I could eat anything I wanted to, but it certainly wasn't, it was very much like you mentioned. I didn't go out of my room. I was uh, I stayed in all the time. Uh, uh, you know, I was taught in college. Not I didn't. I didn't drink. Uh, I probably in my life I probably maybe drank a case of beer. I hate beer. I'm not a drinker, and uh, I didn't. I didn't enjoy going anywhere. I was painfully shy, and it took a while, David, for me to really try to find a way just to get sleep. Uh, you know, you have roommates. Uh, and for a while, I had one roommate who was out. He'd come home at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it had to be picked up at 7 by, uh, by a bus to go to the hotel and catch a first available flight. But I think the one thing that just to have people around you that really cared about uh, making you a better athlete and giving you more, um, giving you more information about how you could treat your body. I had two injuries. One of them you could do nothing about, the broken nose. I had nine of those. Right. But I didn't miss games, David. You'd be bleeding like crazy. They let you play. Yeah. But I had a chronic hamstring pull, and I'm sure I wouldn't have had that. Uh, another thing is strength. I weighed my first year in the league. I weighed 172 pounds. I look like Ichabod Crane. I still do probably, but – uh, I look like Ichabod Crane with a long, really 40-inch sleeve length. Uh, uh, and, you know, your body, I was skinny, uh, uh, wiry strong because of how I lived my life, running and climbing trees and being in the forest all the time. I, uh, but I, I didn't have any idea about how you treat your body. And I remember the only, basically, I had two injuries that, uh, a chronic hamstring pull that I missed a lot of games in my career, David, a lot. I only played, I played less than a thousand games in my career and I averaged over 27 points a game. Um, as it was told me <laughs> and because I don't pay attention to it, but I averaged, I think four or five times in my career over, over 40 games, uh, playing 40 games a minute. Um, 
I hated to come out of games. I, I just like to play and like to compete. And I know it's a selfish, uh, selfish sounding, but, uh, uh, but the one thing that would have helped me, the, the stretching, the weight training, uh, and later on, certainly in the off season where you didn't have to work, you could go and work on the things that you're weakest at. And okay. certainly my ball handling was not my strength, period. It was not. You weren't going to steal it but it wasn't something that I felt really comfortable with and particularly in my left hand. Uh, but there was a lot of ways that they could have helped. And I marvel every day I go into a facility uh, today to see the equipment they have. You have a, you have a different specialist in there every day for, if you've got a, you've got a sprained, uh, if you've got a hangnail, they have somebody there for that. Massages, stretching. But I think the stretching part of it would be the part I would enjoy most. After you've done your preliminary work about getting bigger and stronger, uh, where it applied to basketball. Weight training, after a while, I, I would not have wanted to do that. I just wanted to maintain where I was. But I do, I do that stuff today, and I'm 82 years old. I do that today, and I, you know, I say to myself all the time, oh, my gosh, when, when I watch Ali work with these kids today, it's pretty remarkable as specialist, and all the players should be thankful that they have that at their disposal. Well, I think one of the interesting things, because you were saying, is that, you know, now it, with a hamstring injury, they would have had a hamstring rehab protocol for you. They would have, you know, been working on balancing out your body and everything. And, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned Jamal Murray. One of the things I thought that was a factor in him getting better, too, is he said he put on 12 pounds you know, working out during the, the, the shutdown. And all of a sudden you could see he looks stronger. And as you were saying, you know, that strength comes into effect, driving to the basket, defensively getting over screens and stuff like that. And back then you also didn't have development coaches. And one of the questions I was gonna ask you was, you know, you were kind of on your own, like, okay, how do I figure out how to get better? You know, now you'll have programs from your development coach. You can go into every facility. You can use a hand scan to get in at midnight. There's a development coach that meets you there. Players can get help from a coach every single day, 365 days a year. As you were coming up, you were basically on your own. And even to the 80s and 90s, there weren't always dedicated facilities and there weren't really development coaches. So, you know, how did you figure out what do I need to do to get better? How do I, what drills do I do? Well, David, you know what? I was kind of a copycat and I, I watched people that I thought athletically might replicate who I was, but they, some little things that they would do that I thought were pretty cool and they didn't look too hard to do. Um, uh, so I kind of copied that, but uh, the other thing, the things that, that to me, uh, what was my greatest learning period uh, to me, my mind really helped me a lot, and I'll tell you why. Because I could watch games, um, and I could watch how teams played, and particularly people I played against that I was going to compete against. And I, I saw a lot of this my rookie year. And uh, watching those helped me get better. But just the experience of playing against these players, and I think if you got to the point where you could hear these players say, hey, take it easy on me tonight, <laughs> that, that new – then you knew you'd ride. And then also, I think the probably the crowning piece of it was being named to the all-pro team. And, um, you know, at that time, you're, the writers, this wasn't a popularity contest. Your peers voted on it. And um, 
I, um, that was an honor for me uh, to be included in the best names in the league. And it tells you that you've gotten better, even though you were really young. And you know, I knew there was a huge deficit for me to overcome, right. even being able to play at an all-star level, much less an all-pro level. And so I continued those same things. And then, as I say, I would, if I were a player today, oh, my goodness, uh, I would have relished um, going in a gym and having someone to explain to me or show to me how I might be able to make, make myself a better offensive player. You know, I miss that part, Jer, of having guys tell me to take it easy on them. That somehow I missed that part in my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it's flat, it was flattering to have players or all-star players tell you that. And that oh, happened yeah. a number of times. Um, you know, you've been scouting a long time, too, uh, of players. And has anything changed in how you look for players? Because with the analytics sort of revolution and the value of the three-point line coming into play, you know, shooters are at a, you know, are, are high up on the scale of value. Do, has it changed from when you looked at guys before to now as you look at them, if they don't have that three-point shot, but they have other skills, does that change how you value them? I mean, what are you looking for in players now? Because I've always thought you had a great eye for players. Well, David, I think the one thing, uh, there's a couple of areas, number one, um, you know, how smart are you when you play? Are you easy to play with? Can you, you're not going to make all these uh, elementary mistakes. And we still have players in this league that are all-star players that make some of the right. weirdest mistakes. And it's hard to believe that they're capable of doing it, you know, passing angles. But I think the, the one thing to me, uh, we, everyone talks about analytical things. I think they're important in some ways. Um, but to me, your head and your heart, you can't measure that. You cannot measure that. And in drafting, let's say that you have a really good team. What you're trying to do is find a player that can complement those great players because he has a work ethic, he can think, and he's a, he's a team guy. You put them in an environment like that, and they're going to get better just by playing against with better players. I do not like plotting players. I do not. I like quick athletic players. And, you know, if I, if, if I had a, you know, people when they make cars and they make the same model, I have a model I would like to see as an athlete, okay? He would be probably thin, you know, built something, something like this, a thin-waisted guy who very long arms, springy, could run and really could run, you know, if you could run him against the wall and not damage your car, <laughs> you knew how tough he was. Uh, but I, that's one of the things I've always admired about players. And, and today, obviously, uh, three-point shooters seem to be at a premium because they value it so much. Um, I see times when guys will be running out and have a wide-open layup, Dave, and you might be ahead. You oh, might be ahead by 10 wide open layup and they could just lay it in they'll throw it out to a corner and a guy will miss a three that re long rebound the other team will go make a three um i like the sure baskets but um there's things i definitely like probably a, maybe a little bit more than other people and uh and that will never change um those players who compete at a high level and who are athletic athletic uh, he can defend 
you can't, the only way you can fail in this league is not to be athletic enough or not being able to think the game. And last would be shooting if you were at particularly at a guard position. There's coaches love people that will compete for them and try to do exactly what they want on the court. Coaches love those guys. Right. And also getting a player when you put – if you got a lead, you go in there and you know that he's not going to do something stupid to take a lead, a 24-point lead, down to nothing. Right. And uh, leave them out there too long and they can do that. And uh, But also uh, when I look at players today, I know how hard and how, how the path they want to take with their lives and what they want to do obviously what they want to do is become professional players. And when you say goodbye to them, they're not good enough or when they get traded, uh, those are the most difficult things for, particularly for me uh, when I was involved and uh, saying goodbye is a hard thing to do. Um, You know, it's interesting when the three first came into play in the NBA, 79, 80. Okay. Um, I always thought looking back, nobody really knew what to do with it. Uh, as a league, they only took, I think, just under 5,000 as a league. Every team averaged about 2.83s a game. And it was usually when you were down three to six points in the last minute of a game, you brought in your designated three-point shooter, and he fired up a couple threes. Last year, I think um, they took 83,000 threes, 34 a game for each team. And there was one game uh, the year before that, where I think Houston and New York shot 104 threes, Houston took 70 of them. So one of the questions, Jerry, is there, is there a point like in the next five years or so, because the amount is going up every year and it's not going backwards, I know that, where the league has to determine, do we need to move the line back? You know, is there, are there too many threes or not so many, too many threes, but too many people able to shoot threes consistently at a high, high level? Because now some guys are shooting threes at the same rate that some guys can make twos. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, um, because, you know, at some point, does it just become a game where, you know, a couple dribbles over half court, everybody's firing up a three and the fans don't like it anymore because there's no more excitement to it. Right. Well, David, I, I think it's, it's, there's no question that's a, a huge answer for, uh, for a uh, future of this league. And, and uh, you know, always, people always, coaches are always talking about defense. You can't play defense anymore, okay? If right. people were running down, taking quick threes, you can't play defense. And so the defensive-minded teams uh, are more challenged. And there's some great defensive teams in this league, okay? Really great. Uh, you, can't, you can't be a, a good defensive team with, with a lot of these three-point shots. And then you have guys, regardless of who they are, Anyone will shoot a three. I don't care. I don't care if he's two foot tall or eleven foot tall. They're going to shoot a three. Right. And um, uh, traditionally, it's not a game that I think is pretty. Sometimes when we when some of these teams are, it looked like a bunch of kids playing on a playground. Uh, there has to be coordination to th- shooting three point shots. And the better the better ones have. Obviously, they stack their rosters with guys who can make threes. And they might ha- not have m- much more skill than to do that, maybe athletic. Can they guard anyone? Can, can, are, are they going to be able to stop team? And in the playoffs, there's a game's shrink and the number of run-out opportunities, number of quick shots, those shrink. And I think those teams would be in jeopardy uh, if they're shooting 50-some, 50 free right. throws. Right. But we've had teams, I look at Houston, 
They've had remarkable success with James Harden down there, who an extraordinary player. Uh, but I do think it's going to become a, a, a game where you're going to see from a minimum uh, 30 shots, 30 taken a night. I think the Lakers, when the, when, I think they, when, when the rule came in, I think they took like 100 threes or something like that. Yeah, and they still won the game. number, yeah. Handily, okay, handily. Uh, but it was a gifted team, and it showed you, you there's a lot of ways to win. But uh, it was a great it was a great defensive team on top of it. Yes, uh, with great size, could cover the floor. And now we're seeing more and more zones played, as or people are trying to take take the uh, three point shot out of the game, which opens up the court even more. Uh, you know, we have uh, the officials uh, today. Um, there, there's you can carry the ball all you want to uh, it seems to be part of our league and that's not a criticism because this game is for entertainment and the players are really gifted ball handlers but I see sometimes walking uh, carrying the ball uh, is become part of the league and I wish you know it's like you see guys shooting three-point shots or jumping into people um, that should not be a three-point shot period it should not uh, but it's a, you know, again, it's a, it's a process. I think the league is still learning uh, how to make it a bigger and better game for the fans. Um, and after all, who are you trying to please? The fans and the people who are watching this game worldwide. So would a young teenage Jerry West playing now, let's say he was, you know, 13, would you be out there? I mean, you had a, you had a great mid-range jumper, and I was fortunate to play. My career overlapped a little bit, and I, and I saw it live. But would you be out there working on your three now? Because I could easily see you with that ability to shoot that jumper, being one of those guys you came down on a transition break and just pulling up and you're dropping threes all over the place. Well, David, the, go ahead. Go ahead. <clears throat> now, I was just going to say, would the times change how you develop certain parts of your game, just like for a lot of guys it has, that the three has become something guys feel they have to add to their you know, repertoire, so to speak? Well, David, I really don't think, except out front, I, I don't think it's a hard shot, to be honest with you. I mean, I used to, after I was retired and uh, coaching, I used to go shoot a lot of three-point shots. The corner three is like a free throw, to be honest right. with you. It's not, it's not a hard shot to shoot. Uh, the only thing that makes a little bit, you, know, you can stand out and shoot them. If you're a good shooter, you can stand out and shoot them all day. And you're going to make a lot of them if you can shoot the ball. Um, where it gets a little bit more challenging is where people are running at you. And, uh, but we see some remarkable three-point shooting, uh, shooting. And, uh, again, I think it's a learned process like many things that, uh, in this league. You take kids that are uh, they're the little today. I mean, you watch them handle the ball beautifully, and they'll come down and they'll take, they'll take a, a three. Uh, and you're, this guy's this big, a little guy. He's, he's, he's taking the shot. And, He'll make it, and, and the fan, his mother and father particularly are there, and they'll go crazy watching him make it. But the ball handling ability and be able to get to those places today has changed the game. And also the coaches, to me, have changed the game a lot. They're the ones who have been the innovators in taking advantage of rule changes. Um, uh, you know, we had, I was watching last night on YouTube, which is really funny, all the old fights in the NBA. Oh, David, there are some bad ones, okay? And, and today, we don't see that anymore. So the league has done a great job policing this and making this a, a gentleman's game. Right. I don't think it should be a gentleman's game. And it's not, it's not in the playoffs. And that's why I enjoy the playoffs so much. Right. 
Yeah, because sometimes you'll see two guys bump into each other and they, they almost want to have a fight and you're kind of laughing because back then that wasn't even, you know, anything. It was going to be a fight. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that as you look back over maybe the last eight to 10 years, especially, you know, you're seeing obviously more threes, you're seeing, you know, stretch fours and stretch fives, you're seeing much more, you know, freedom of movement in offenses, a lot more dribble handoffs, more back doors, um, a small ball lineup that Houston used where you're playing PJ Tucker as the six, five center. What do you like about some of the changes offensively? Because they've taken away a lot from the defense. You, you really can't hand check anymore. Uh, scorers have much more ability to go to the hoop and, and you almost can't touch them anymore. But what do you like about the more freedom of movement and, and more of the open court stuff? It, it, as you look at back as you as a player, how would you have liked to have fit in with some of those? Well, I think it would be like professional football. My goodness, you can't, you can't even touch a quarterback today, okay? So it tells you there's special treatment for a quarterback and that's why they're so highly valued. And, and there's a couple of them that, I can't wait to watch Patrick Mahomes. I can't wait to watch uh, Aaron Rodgers because they're, to me, they're exceptional. Tom Brady is still like a classic quarterback. But the first two have something really special about them. And they seem to, you know, they don't like to get hit, nor would I like to get hit by a guy of those sizes. But I do think that there's uh, the, the league has changed. There's no question. And I see these players, as I described you before, you know, at one time they're all Fords and Chevys in this country. Every year they had a model, I don't know, Bel Air or for Chevy. Right. I don't know what the <laughs> Ford was. But, um, but it looks like these players are all built out of the same kind of right. mold. Right. They, at an early age, uh, look at Anthony Davis, who to me is – there's no better player in the league than him. He used to be a guard. Have you watched him handle a basketball? Yeah. He's amazing. And he can shoot from everywhere. He does everything. But he started at an early age as a guard, and he obviously grew to be a, a huge man. And uh, I just think the kids pick the game up so early. You never know when they're going to have this uh, enormous uh, growth spurt. And um, it, it's just it's amazing what these kids have done. you got to give them credit. But obviously the system will let you do some things now that weren't uh, acceptable years ago. Um, and I think the game will continue to evolve. Uh, I had somebody suggest to me the other day, are they going to have a four or five point shot? Right. Well, if they're going to have that, I'm not going to watch. I'm not going to watch. Uh, I like to see the things that most people, if I'm a fan, I think the one thing that, if, that I enjoy most is to watch people that can really pass the ball. Right. That, to me, is the beauty of the game. You know, everyone dunks today, so that's not, you know, it's not something unless we have some of these kids that play on a trampoline that they're so athletic and so look like ballet dancers, to be honest with you, how, they, how graceful they are going there and avoid people and this enormous jumping ability and, and some of the dunks they made, are they're truly spectacular. I love to watch that but also love to watch the passing aspect in many cases, which will get you to that point. You know, I want to, I want to touch base on two of the things you were talking about, because uh, I think what's happening too is, uh, and, and it has to do with the three point shot. I think more young kids probably look at this as they start playing basketball, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years old, whatever. Um, they're trying to emulate Steph Curry as opposed to LeBron. 
because <laughs> as much as they love LeBron, they know they're probably not going to grow to 6'8 and 270 or whatever he is. But they think, hey, I might be able to get to Steph's size. And mm -hmm. if I really just learn to handle and shoot threes, I may have a chance. And then you go to the other side of the equation where I think a couple over the last couple of years, there was this thought that the center position was being devalued. And now all of a sudden we have AD, we have Jokic, we have Embiid, Bam Adebayo is going to get there. You know, Draymond Green, when he plays five, these fives that now can handle, they can run the pick and roll. They can, they can facilitate out of high posts. They can shoot a three. They can post. I think we're almost seeing like these two positions that maybe over the next five or 10 years, you're going to have a lot of these players who grow up, who've now spent 10 years defining some more of these skills coming into college or coming into the pros because those are the models for them more than like an old time post up center. Well, David, we don't have traditional uh, players that are playing center. One time a center would just go in there. It's like a big oak tree and they throw in the ball. He'd overpower people. You know, he would, uh, he would set huge screens. These players today, as I say, uh, the thing I admire about them is how versatile they are. Uh, but again, I think if you look in all their backgrounds, you'd probably find the same thing. They grew up handling the ball. Uh, they grew up shooting mid-range shots. And of course, as they got bigger, they expanded the range. Um, it's truly remarkable. And, and to say, we have a bunch of them that can do that today. Uh, and they call them rim runners, guys that you can throw lobs to. Uh, but the versatility of the players, to me, is what's made the difference. But having traditional centers, uh, there's not very many of them left. There's not. And I, if any, and because if you're not versatile enough to move outside and make a, uh, you know, make a, a free throw, I mean, a, a, a shot from the free throw line or maybe even a three, right. uh, everyone is looking for that special big guy that is so much more versatile than what we've seen in the past. But it, again, it's an evolution of the game. And there's some really good young players out there. It's interesting to see how they'll – uh, how they'll, their game will change as they get into their, you know, 28 to 30, which is starting, to me, the, the prime years for a player, 28 to 34. I think right. that's a prime year, a prime of players play. And we're talking about people that are really young, that are continuous to and get better. You know, I want to touch base with you to go uh, shake your memory bank a little bit. Um, in 1960, you're in Rome, you win a gold medal. There were two, a lot of uh, excellent athletes then, but two that jumped out. Rayford Johnson just passed away recently, and Muhammad Ali won gold there too. Do you have any memories of interacting with them or just watching them compete at the same time in their events? Well, David, you know, we're, we stayed in the same village together, okay? We didn't stay in hotel rooms. We stayed in, <laughs> in, in Rome. We were in Rome, and uh, it was really hot there and humid, no air conditioning. So I, I don't sleep very much anyway, and that was a problem. But you could hear Muhammad Ali. You could walk under this whole building, okay? You could hear him chanting, and he always had a bunch of people with him. <laughs> and um, so uh, – very familiar with him. I got to know him a little bit. And of course, you know, to see his life and I've read so many books on him that, uh, and I have great admiration for the courage he showed uh, years ago and what he went through in his life. And then uh, I do remember uh, you, Ray, what do you say, Ray Norton? Ray for, Ray for Johnson, yeah. Ray for Johnson. Well, of course, you know, he was a big favorite going over there and he was a, as nice a person as you ever want to meet, as was Al Lee. Um, 
but Rafer, uh, I got to know him here in Los Angeles and he was a marvelous human being. Uh, you can never find anything in his life that wasn't about excellence. Um, he just, he's one of those special people that uh, we need, need more like him. And uh, Ali was, uh, as I say, I've read so many books on him uh, that are really touching and some of the things that he went through in his life, uh, uh, changing religions, uh, uh, the friends of his who, uh, you know, didn't believe him and him. And obviously a lot of people in the country, uh, some of the things they said about him and to think that his courage made him one of the most iconic figures that the world has ever seen. He wasn't just an iconic figure uh, in America, but throughout the world, um, amazing person. And they will be sadly missed, but my hope is we'll see some people and particularly uh, minorities come along and, and say, hey, look, uh, this is who I want to emulate. I don't want to emulate anyone else but these two people because of what they've what they meant to uh, not only me, uh, but to, uh, uh, to the world. Uh, we need more people like this, classy people who are just great people. You know, Tommy Heinsohn passed away recently, and, you know, your careers overlapped a little bit, and uh, Tommy was on the Victoria's playoff teams, you know, the finals teams. Any memories of him, both as a player, and then he obviously went on to be a successful coach. And I was fortunate, I was in Boston when he was doing the color, and Tommy was great to always go out and have lunch with because he had such great stories, but he also was a really smart guy in his observations about life and, and things like that. So I was just curious if you had any memories of, of interactions with him or just competing against his team. Well, you know, as I say, I, I always really respected Tommy. Um, you know, he was, uh, he really was a Celtic. I mean, nothing else mattered to his life than, than his association with the Celtics. And he was a coach, as he mentioned, he was very smart. Um, great competitor, tough too, right? really a tough guy too, by the way. Um, and listening to him on the Boston Celtic broadcast, <laughs> I used to laugh all the time. Oh my God. There wasn't an official in the league that he liked because they were all against the Celt poor Celtics, okay? Um, and just knowing some of the things that he played, he paid me one time the greatest compliment ever, and I'm not going to bring it up, but he brought, but paid me one of the best compliments ever as a player. And uh, I will be ever thankful that he said what he said, and uh, I will keep that to myself. But people like that, you miss, uh, you know, the long association with the Celtics. And, and having said that, the Celtics have always had this family-like atmosphere. Uh, they've they've relished all the players that have been there through thick or thin, and he was one of the most iconic ones, and he will be missed. And I will miss him on the telecast, particularly uh, because I wanted to hear him say how the Celtics were getting screwed. By the <laughs> you know, Tommy, if you if you looked up the definition of Homer in the dictionary, Tommy's picture was there probably. You know, well, it was probably in there a full page picture, by the way. <laughs> Your ex-teammate, Elgin Baylor, you know, Elgin retired when I first came in the league. So as a kid, I had just seen him on, on tape and he was phenomenal. He was like, I would try and go out in the driveway and even try some of the moves, you know, and, you, and I couldn't do them. I don't know that he's gotten the, the reverence or the, 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 the ability for people to recognize how good he was 
compared to like yourself or some of the others. And I'm, I'm not sure why. Do you have any thoughts on, on why not? Because his game, his game was phenomenal. You could put him on the court right now and guys couldn't play him. Well, David, first of all, <clears throat> it's one of the things I've said for years. I can't believe that someone of his ability, but also the person he was, uh, he's one of my favorite people. Forget how great he was at basketball. But this is truly a great person. Um, I thank him to this day for allowing me to be in his world. Um, I love that guy. I still love him. And the things that have happened to him in life don't seem to be fair. Uh, for some reason, he has not got his just due. Uh, he was just remarkable. Uh, the instincts he had, the, the ability to make shots off the board, uh, his instincts to offensive rebound. Uh, uh, he was just – He's just an amazing player, but more importantly, he was an amazing person. I, I, I can't tell you, uh, even today when I have a chance to see him, I always reminisce about watching him in practice, okay, when I was with, with his teammates. I learned so much from him, but also learned how you should conduct yourself in terms of interacting with people in the press. He was always so courteous and so nice. Uh, never braggadocious, um, and sometimes I almost – I've told him, I said, it's, it's hard for me to believe that people don't recognize the greatness that you have. When I watch players today that couldn't carry his shoes, uh, that have played in the past, uh, he would have been, been able to play really great today. Um, but he was – one of those unique players that come along and uh, that you admire. If you play with him, you respect. But the respect that other players had for him, he was a, he was a feared opponent. But uh, that was only part of the story. The other part was what a great person he was. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. And just want to wish you good luck this season with the Clippers and stay safe out there. Well, Dave, same to you, and, and uh, good luck to you in any endeavor you're going forward. I always enjoyed being around you and, and uh, hated playing against you because you fouled so much. <laughs> Thanks to Hall of Famer Jerry West for being so generous with his time. Thanks to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and also to our editor, Tom Phillip, for his great work. Please listen to our other Pure Hoops media shows. The Mike Wise Show has a new episode every Monday. Full Court with Fisher and Kay has the best in college basketball every Tuesday. Each Wednesday, we have a new Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin. On Thursday, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks drops with your hosts, Monica McNutt and King McClure. And the Pure Hoops podcast releases a new show every Friday with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Please download and listen, and a five-star review would be much appreciated. And just a friendly reminder, COVID-19 is not done with us. So please continue to wear your mask in public, keep your distance, and wash your hands. And keep all the medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They're putting it all on the line for us. Stay safe, have a great holiday season, and we'll see you soon on Dave's Front Office. Dave's Front Office. 
with your host, Dave Wool, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Thank <laughs> you.